Now this morning I want to take you on a trip back through a quarter of a century to the Falklands conflict. It's amazing to think it is in fact you know, 25 years ago the conference Falklands. The story I want to think about is a tale of a Dalton lad who joined the army. Tony McNally became a junior leader at the age of 16. A boy entrant he marked as a future NCO. Four years later he found himself in the South Atlantic manning a rapier missile system. His job was to shoot down the Argentinian aircraft and missiles. Now on the day they hit the support ship Sir Galahad, Tony's rapier failed. The bombs got through and the ship became a fireball. He couldn't do a thing to save them. 25 years later, Tony has just written down his story in Watching Men Burn. And it joins us from our Baron studio this morning. Good morning to you, Tony. Good morning, Paul. Thanks for coming in. Before we get into the book and, and what happened in the Falklands, you, you joined up with 16. Was that something you almost wanted to do then? Was the army it for you? Yes, I, th I think um, it, it stems from when you're a child and you start playing with toy guns and tanks and things. Uh, and then while I was at school, as at around about 12, 13, I joined the army cadets, and I think that that's what gives you the uh, focus to want to be a soldier in the end. Yeah, I mean, were you prepared for what was to come? No, I don't think anybody could really understand what, what was uh, about to happen to us, because obviously you can't have any imagination of what war's going to be like. Mm. Now, when it happened, I, th I think it's fair to say that most of the country had no idea where the Falklands were. They'd never heard of them. In fact, we didn't even know we owned them. No. I mean, were you any of the wiser? No, we were like the same. When when we first found out, we were in our base in um, Curtin Lindsay on South Humberside. Somebody said the Falklands have been invaded, and like a lot of people, we assumed it was in uh, somewhere off the coast of uh, Scotland, <laughs> thinking what 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 the Argentinians doing invading Scotland, but. Uh, you know, we were soon to found out later on where it was exactly. Right, so it must have been quite a trek to get there. I mean, what sort of preparation did you have en route? Uh, well, we had, the one thing we did have on our uh, side was time, because mm. we, we were at sea for over eight weeks, uh, because obviously there was a lot of political wrangling going on, uh, so we didn't go straight down there. We, you know, we stopped off at Ascension Island, uh, and uh, while, while the politicians um, tried to sort it diplomatically, um, so, so we did have a lot of time training-wise and a lot of time to think. You're right. Now, you were a, a rapier missile operator. Well, what's, what's a rapier missile? What do you have to do? Uh, a rapier missile is a, is a low-level surface-to-air missile, um, basically, you know, to, to protect your ground troops from air attack. Um, so so um, you, you basically sat um, in a chair. In, in the middle of the field, believe it or not. Right. There's no cover or anything. With, with a helmet on, uh, looking through a, like a binocular uh, and uh, looking for aircraft. So you, you are quite exposed. I, I mean, you're not under camouflage netting. There's camouflage netting, but unfortunately, we, we were uh, always trained to fight against the Soviet army in uh, Germany, mm. protecting West Germany, which you've got a lot of trees and forests. The Falklands is a really, really barren place. There's no trees, it's very windswept, there's, there's, there's actually not a lot of cover at all. So when you're sitting out in the middle of this windswept field, mm -hmm. and suddenly you get some of the three headphones over the, over the PA, you know, bandits at five o'clock or whatever, yeah. I mean, your adrenaline must just go shooting through the roof. It, it, it is, yeah. Um, the good thing is, though, like with all uh, British soldiers, you, your training takes over. You, mm. You're trained, you just go into a function, you, you, you hear the alarm, you go through your drills, uh, and that actually occupies your mind uh, at the time. Um, it, it seems strange, but you don't actually, at that time, <clears throat> think of it as like 
oh, this guy could kill me. Because you've done it on simulators and things in, in the UK, mm. you just carry on through your drills and, and, and eventually, hopefully, you're successful in shooting aircraft down, which, luckily, I, I was successful at San Carlos where I shot uh, an A4 Skyhawk down and then a, a Mirage before we got technical problems. Right. What goes through your mind then, Tony? You, know, you, 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 you sound very matter-of-fact, you know, you shot a couple of aircraft down. I mean, yeah. How, how do you feel at the time? At the time... Um, it sounds quite callous, but you don't actually picture a human being at the controls. Mm. It's basically just a weapons platform that wants to kill you, and you go through your drills and you destroy it. It's only many, many years later on that you start putting the human being inside the aircraft and realise that, you know, he's just like everybody else. But at the time, you just got to focus on your job uh, to achieve what, you, what you're trying to do. Mm. Now, you mentioned you had technical problems. I mean, what happened the day they got the Galahad? Well, the annoying thing was... we. When the equipment was working at San Carlos, it was working really fine, and we did, as I say, we had two successful um, hits. Um, then we, we developed a, a, a fault with the track ahead. Um, it, it basically, it had taken a lot of bashing around in the holds of the ships coming from the UK. They were never meant to, to, to travel at sea for such long lengths. They were always meant to be uh, towed on the roads in West Germany. So, so the salt water, the banging around didn't help things, and the helicopters, believe it or not, um, were a little bit rough when they were dropping them off because they obviously wanted to get out of the way as soon as possible. Mm. Uh, and I mean, I know it's just a weapon and it should be able to take a bit of stick, but um, when it developed the fault, we radioed it ahead to, to, to let them know, and we were all, in, the whole of the detachment was really surprised when they found out that our detachment was to be picked to go on the uh, Galahad with the Welsh Guards around Abuff Cove. Right. So, um, as you can imagine, I was rather, uh, you know, apprehensive that, that, that the equipment was going to work, and uh, my worst fears were, were founded at the end, unfortunately. I suppose you wouldn't be able to find out that it wasn't going to work until you actually needed to use it. That, that's right, yeah. It, uh, it, it's, um, it's not like a... Um, like a field gun, say you can just get it, get it going, and you know, get it ready in a few minutes. Mm. You've got to, there's, there's cables, there's wires, there's there's lots of, uh, and then you've got to go through a system of tests and adjustments. Now, the the annoying thing was obviously the time we took sitting on the ship before somebody made a decision. Um, if, if perhaps they'd have got us off a little bit quicker, which they could have done, we maybe, maybe out of um, uh, got the equipment working. Who knows? Right. So what actually happened then? So I mean, you know, you, you've gone, you've gone around in the ship, in, uh, and then you got off with all your gear. I take it. Then. Yeah. And um, then the Argentinians attacked. Yeah. Um, basically, the, the, there was an idea to, to send the Welsh guards around a bluff cove, so that it speeded up the uh, the advance on Port Stanley. So, so obviously they needed air defence cover, so we were sent round with the Welsh Guards on the Galad, and there was another ship, the Tristram, that was hit, but not as badly. Mm. Um, now, the problem was that the, the actual destination was a place called Bluff Cove that everybody understands it as. Basically, we didn't actually arrive at Bluff Cove. Um, we arrived at a place called Fitzroy. Uh, <laughs> strangely enough, a place called Port Pleasant. It wasn't that pleasant. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, the, the, it was incredible that there was an argument between the, the senior officers that were basically saying, my men aren't at the right destination. And it's not like you're getting a bus from Barra to Walney. You know? uh, so so the, there was an argument going on. Uh, while this was happening, there was uh, Argentinians on a hill, seen the two ships, obviously radioed it back to their headquarters, uh, and the Argentinian Air Force set off. So 
like I say, it, it was it, you get a thing called the fog of war, uh, where things can happen, and I understand that people can die in war. It's inevitable mm. that this will happen, but. Sending the equipment when it wasn't functioning was bad enough, but then arguing about whether they should get off or not, or whether they should mix men with ammunition, this all contributed to this uh, tragedy and, 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 and the biggest loss of, of life to British forces since the Second World War. So you're sitting there with your rapier, ready to defend the Galahad. Mm -hmm. The aircraft arrived, the Argentinian aircraft arrived. What happened when you pressed the button that time? Well, I, w I was tracking out to sea. Uh, and I, we didn't actually get air raid warning red. Normally you get uh, air raid warning red over the radio that warns you. I visually saw a Skyhawk, an A4 Skyhawk, and it was they're basically just skimming the sea. They're absolutely incredibly brave pilots, mm -hmm. if you look at it from that angle. Um, so when I saw it, and you know, obviously screamed, you know, we're under attack. Um, there was there was about another, there was about six or seven aircraft in all uh, attacking the, the two ship, ships. I, I did, went through my drills, alarm narrow target, tracking, in cover, did, did all that. When I press the fire button, you get you get a tapping noise in your helmet, which is like a woodpecker, mm. which makes mean systems fall. This means your kit's inoperable. So you basically, and I think I mentioned that in my book, um, it, 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 you had to sort of sit there and watch the carnage happening in front of you. We, we totally... You know, you, you couldn't... There was nothing you could do about it. You felt absolutely helpless. Uh, and obviously frightened as well, but then you had the, the, the parachute regiment and the other infantry lads obviously were looking to us, which I would as well, for, for defence. Now, they, they were obviously really upset and they were giving us a lot of abuse and, you know, why didn't you fire your missiles? And, and that's understandable, but uh, you do feel uh, a great sense of uh, guilt that you haven't done it uh, and, and utter disappointment. So, I mean, literally, I mean, you've called the book Watching Men Burn. Yes. That's what you had to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, actually, the publisher named it. I mean, I, I don't know if I would have probably been brave enough to call it that, but mm. uh, thinking about it, I suppose it is quite a relevant title. It, you, we were literally watching Men Burn, yes. Yeah. After it happened, I mean, they were bringing men ashore. I mean, they were, they were in a heck of a state, weren't they? I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Could you do anything? At all? No, no. Uh, we we were we was basically I was numb with fear, uh, and we were just sat there. Um, the Scots Guards and other parachute regiment soldiers went down to the waterside to help them ashore. Uh, ironically, we weren't allowed to leave our position because we were, we were there supposed to be manning the the aircraft, uh, the the missile system, even though it was malfunctioning. Mm. Um, so so once again, we just had to sit and watch them come ashore. And uh, when you think. You know, I was a 19-year-old soldier. It's a massive responsibility that you feel personally that, that it, because of you um, that, that, that all these men have been killed and terribly injured. Uh, uh, notably, Simon Weston, who, who, who Simon's written the forward for the book. Yes, yes, he did. I, I was I was really uh, appreciative of him of doing that. I, I didn't think for one minute that he would actually blame me or the the equipment. It's just one of those things. But um, obviously, Simon was was, was uh, seized upon, if you like, by the the, the media and the, the TV, and they followed his life story through, which uh, he's, he's obviously turned it around and he's become a very successful man. Yeah. Having gone through the book here, Tony, I had to, towards the end, I mean, you're talking about that this has obviously had a huge effect on you because you had night terrors, yeah. nightmares. Obviously, I mean, you've been suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, yeah. I would say. I mean, did that ma manifest itself immediately or, or, or later on? I think, to be honest, it manifested itself immediately because prior to that, I never had any problems with sleeping. Mm. Every, everybody has nightmares, 
but but a night terror is different. You know, you're actually reliving a horror. You you you're waking up, your eyes are open, but you're not awake, um, and it's it's a terrifying thing. And um, the, the thing being, then I didn't know. None of us knew. That, that we were suffering from anything because nobody had even mentioned. Now everybody knows about it now, but in the 1980s, nobody had heard of PTSD. Even though the the Ministry of Defence did know about it, uh, due to what had happened in Vietnam. Mm. I mean, you felt so strongly about it. You actually went to Downing Street and handed your medals. Yeah. The re the reason why I, I did that was because um, obviously 255 soldiers died in the war. Now. That's understandable that people die in war. It's, it's, it's unfortunate, but over 300 Falcons veterans have taken their own lives since 1982, and that's that to me is a is a, a, a worse tragedy. It's terrible. Mm. Um, there's a lad in the book, Mickey Quinn, that served with me on the rapier. He took his own life only last year mm. through PTSD. He was being um, treated in um, a clinic in uh, North Wales. Uh, and it was shut down like all the military hospitals there's one military hospital left in the united kingdom can you believe uh Halslar in portsmouth that's due to close at the end of this month and and i did feel passionate about it and and it annoyed me you know you you, you can be proud of what you're doing and still try and get your point across of uh, the, you know these men have, have put their life on the line and and they, they, they just need treating you, you say that you need treating but i know reading the book i mean you actually resisted the treatment you thought no i don't need this and this is for sissies basically correct yeah because once again i didn't understand what was happening nobody had said it could have been a simple thing they could have said look when you get home if you, if you start having bad dreams it's because of this don't worry about it too much go and see your MO or your, or your GP and what have you mm. but when you suddenly start having um, terrible nightmares feelings of depression guilt you think it's just you that's suffering and everybody else is, is, is coping fine and the thing with the, 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 the British military especially more elite soldiers you know like your parish your Marines the SAS they don't like to hold their hand up and say, I have a problem. Mm. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a macho thing, stiff upper lip, and that's part of the problem. And I wanted to sort of break the barrier of this. You, you can talk about it. We're only human beings. And, and as I've used before, uh, if you had a fireman, say, um, and he, he was called out on a shout, he went to a, say, a house, there was some children in a wardrobe that were burnt to a cinder, if he was affected by the death of these children, nobody would look at him in a bad way. They, they wouldn't say, well, you're a fireman, get on with it. Yeah. What, what annoys me is it, it tends to be that you're a soldier, get on with it. Well, soldiers suffer the same as everybody else. Looking back on the whole thing, I mean, has this book been good for you? Is it to, to, you know, to get it out of the system, be cathartic, perhaps? I, th I, th I think so. In, so. in some ways, you, you feel like you've got to get it out there because I always think perhaps... One guy could come back from even Iraq, Afghanistan, he could read that book and he could say, that's me, I'm having these problems. I'm being like uh, 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 jumpy and I'm having nightmares and I'm being argumentative and perhaps I'm drinking too much and perhaps I'm not talking about things and perhaps I should do what this guy's done and, and, and talk about it and get it out in the open. Have you been able to reconcile everything in your own mind, Tony? You know, that, you know, it wasn't your fault. I mean, you, yes. it was the equipment. And I imagine that the, the blokes on the ship must have been, you know, yelling at the top of their voice about it. Yeah, now, now I have. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the, in the early days, part of this, the, the problem of 
post-traumatic stress is the guilt thing and survivor guilt and you think why did I survive and they died mm. but now I can I can uh, point the finger directly at the equipment's fault uh, uh, and I mean, I mean it is unfair to say it's his or his or his fault things happen in war like I say but it wasn't the, the men on the ground's fault it was it was a tragedy but I personally believe that it could have been avoided in the end of the book, you see, I'd like the families of the soldiers who died aboard the Sagamahad and the survivors to know that not a day has gone by when I haven't thought about what happened. I'm deeply sorry I couldn't do more for your sons, husbands, fathers and mates. I hope you can forgive me. Um, have you had any feedback at all? Um, I've... Um I've got a, I actually did start a blog. What I found was really therapeutic, and I, uh, I always say to other soldiers, perhaps, right, is to write poetry. And I've done that quite a lot. In fact, um, I wrote a short story once uh, about the First World War that I actually read out on Radio Cumbria a number of years ago. And I found it a good way of sort of self-counselling. And, and like, a lot of soldiers like to say, well, I'll do it myself, and that's a good way of doing it. So I started a blog, and I do get quite a good, a good bit of feedback you're always going to get you know somebody that's just going to be negative for the for the, for the hell of it who, who, people that haven't read the book say and don't understand what they're on about and, and you know criticize but generally um i've had positive feedback from from uh, the regiment uh, and, and everybody concerned with the with the falcons war it's been great to talk to you and thanks very much indeed for coming in mate. nice to talk to you watching men burn a soldier's story by tony mcnally with the forward by simon weston it's published by monday books at seven pounds Good afternoon, listeners. I've just uploaded an interview I did with uh, Radio Cumbria 25 years after the Falcons' War. I thought it might be interesting from a mental health point of view um, if you are interested in my book that I mentioned make sure you purchase Still Watching Men Burn Fighting the PTSD War thank you